question for you. What's your relationship with your body? What I mean by that is, are you comfortable in your skin or is that hard for you? Is there something you dislike? Are your joints giving you issues? Are you experiencing chronic illness or aging? Now, that's a really loaded question, and I realize that, but it's really important that I ask it. It's an important starting place for today because it's relevant to all of Ezekiel. I've got one more exercise for us. Would you look at your hands? Just notice the wrinkles, the cracks, the fingerprints. Look past your hands and notice your torso, your legs. One more question. Is all of this that you see, is this part of you or is it only a container? Is this part of you or is this just a container that you are in? Today's not about self-image. Um, and again, it's important that we start here addressing our bodies. And I think many of us need to hear the fact that God loves and values your physical body. God loves and values your physical self. If you'd like proof of that, I submit exhibit A. You, you exist in a body. You are not a floating phantasm drifting through the cosmos. You're here with this meat container. Exhibit B, the Bible is very clear in Genesis that God created a spiritual reality with spiritual beings. And in addition to that, he created a physical reality with physical beings, AKA you and I. There is a spiritual reality, angels, demons, God himself. There's also a physical reality. God made both of those things. Exhibit C, your body, this thing, your body is a temple. In Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. God began creation with humans as physically and spiritually intertwined beings. That's how we work. We're physically and spiritually intertwined. And his plan of redemption then does not end by throwing out your physical self, leaving you as a spiritual phantasm. His plan of redemption ends with you embodied, you continuing as a physical self. His plan includes resurrection of your body, as well as restoration. That is what we're talking about today. That's why we're spending time setting this up. We're going to cover today in Ezekiel, one of the first instances in Scripture, specifically Old Testament, where God reveals that his plan of redemption includes physical resurrection. This is Ezekiel 37. Now, before we can jump in, here's our story so far. Here's like a paragraph that summarizes everything we've been doing for the last 10 weeks. Story so far says this, God created a kingdom, meaning everything, and he is the king, but he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman, who was also the seed of Abraham. And through Abraham's family, specifically Judah's royal seed, David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly their need for a substitute who would be the suffering servant. And through that servant and the work of the Spirit, God would establish a new covenant, meaning a new promise, and he would give lasting life to his people. That last sentence is what we're focusing in on today. So here's our roadmap, what to expect this morning. We're going to introduce Ezekiel, both just as a, a book itself, and then we're going to actually read a portion of Ezekiel's introduction together, establishing what it's all about. Then we're going to move on to the main 
section of today's topic, which is Ezekiel 36 and 37. We're going to read it and then exegete it, meaning interpret it. And we're going to interpret that number three for this historical moment. We're in a historical reality, and Ezekiel has significance for us. But Ezekiel also has a double meaning that is relevant for the future, the end of this age. And so we're going to be looking at interpretations for both this historical moment as well as the future age. And then we're going to support the idea of physical bodily resurrection using the New Testament. Sound good? Let's jump in. We're going to start with Ezekiel. Um, before we open up our Bibles, if you'd go to the next slide, please. Just some important things to know about um, biblical prophecy and prophetic books in the Old Testament. We covered this last week, so I'm going to just do a fly-through summary. Most books of prophecy in the Old Testament are, include these five things. Number one, they're asserting that God is speaking through them. This is important. It's not just a person speaking. It's someone carrying the perspective of God. That is important. Number two, they're affirming or confirming that God has chosen Israel for special covenant relationship. They have special instruction, special role, special relationship. Number three, prophets speak because the majority of Israel is in sin. The majority of Israel is living outside of relationship with God and outside of his standards of justice. This isn't just a small pocket of the population. This is widespread. Therefore, a prophet is speaking. Number four, prophets will warn that judgment and consequence are the tool that will eradicate sin. Something needs to ha be like happen about it, evil. Evil cannot go unaddressed. So either you need to stop, I'm warning you, and if you're not going to stop, I'm going to remove it. And then the fifth is that even in judgment, on the far side of judgment is a promise of renewal. God is saying, essentially, your sin cannot stop my plan of redemption. You can't sin bad enough for me to not restore creation. Now, um, a couple of specific things for Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel has three styles of prophecy, many of which you'll see today um, as we're reading. So three styles in Ezekiel's writing. Number one, he has spiritual visions. Like crazy stuff happens. He sees these spiritual realities and then he writes it down and tells people about them. Often they're very confusing. We're going to address one of those today. Uh, the second style in the book of Ezekiel is like prophetic theater, where he'll actually go out and do something shocking to get people's attention. Uh, we won't uh, experience any of these, but for example, one of the things he does is he actually goes out and he builds a clay model of Jerusalem. And then he cuts off his hair and throws it in the middle and lights it on fire and then grabs a sword and like starts smashing it and says, Jerusalem, this is going to be you. Babylon's going to come in and burn and pillage. And he gets people's attention through physical acts of theater. And then the third stylistic thing is just oracles or another word is pronouncements. He's basically saying, thus says the Lord, X, Y, Z. So those are the three styles in Ezekiel. Now, uh, we are reading Ezekiel 1 and 2 and 36 and 37. And so that means there's 30-some books between them. So really quickly, I want to anchor the flow of Ezekiel so we know some of the different stages that he's writing in. There's three main stages in Ezekiel. Number one is chapters 1 through 24 is a warning to Israel. At this point in time, Israel's been attacked by Babylon. Babylon has taken some uh, prisoners but Israel's still operating as a nation. And so God is continuing to warn Israel about what they're doing. And then the middle section of Ezekiel is chapters 25 through 32, where God then pivots from addressing Israel to addressing all the nations around Israel. And it's very consistent. It's basically warning, lamentation of evil, and then promise of restoration. Uh, and then the third section is where our main text is, and this is uh, Ezekiel 33 through 48. And this is basically after Babylon has come in a second time, they've now officially conquered Israel, brought a killed a majority of people, and then many of the survivors have brought back to Babylon in exile. So this is an entirely different stage of history. Israel has been crushed. Its people are living as refugees. They're hopeless. And so God's message pivots a little bit. And instead of warning, now he's offering comfort and hope, trying to carry them through their despair. And this is where our main text is. Um, 
You guys ready to jump into Ezekiel? Let's do it. Okay, so this first part of Ezekiel, honestly, it's a bit of an aside because it, it has very little to do with the main body of our teaching. I'll give you warning about that because uh, I don't want us to like be looking for loose threads. Essentially, I want us to focus in on the first chapter. And the reason we're spending a few minutes here is because as we're moving through this whole series, it would be um, sad if we only got ideas and we never anchored them into any text. So we're spending like five minutes to anchor ourselves to understanding Ezekiel. So that way when we get to the main meat of our message, we can attach it to the rest of scripture. Sound good? Would you read with me Ezekiel chapter one, verse one. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest. He was the son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chabar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. This is the setting of Ezekiel. Babylon has come, attacked, taken some prisoners. Ezekiel is now one of those refugees living in Babylon, specifically a place called the Chabar Canal. It's a refugee camp. While he's in this refugee camp, he's a priest and he has a vision of the Lord. Now, I'm gonna really quickly summarize chapter one and then we'll read chapter two together, okay? Chapter one, if you've read Ezekiel, is this crazy moment where the heavens open up. There's this cloud that comes from the north and this cloud is like flashing with thunder and fire and it's bright and brilliant. And then out of this cloud comes this, a very confusing creature contraption. There's four angels, and I'm going to have some symbols on the screen just to help us keep track of the different components. There's four angels that all have four wings and four faces. Um, and they come out, and then next come, and so angels are basically servants of the Lord. That's what's occurring here, is these servants of the Lord come out. And then next to these angels is one wheel for each angel. But these wheels are interesting. They're described as wheels within wheels with eyeballs all around the wheels. Remember, this is a, a vision of a spiritual reality and Ezekiel's, his mind is blown and he's doing his very best to go, okay, it's kind of like, imagine a wheel. And so he's struggling with words right now. That's why it's confusing. It's a spiritual reality. It's not grounded in our tangible world. So next to each angel is a wheel. And then above these four angels is a platform. And this is described as an awe-inspiring diamond-like surface. Um, in Ezekiel, they use the word expanse, but a helpful way of understanding is just a platform. So you've got these angels on wheels carrying a platform. It's essentially what's going on here. And then Ezekiel continues and he says, above that platform was the likeness of a throne. And on that throne is the appearance of someone like a human. And so this is like what you're seeing is these four elements, angels, wheels, a platform, and a throne. Essentially what Ezekiel is describing is a chariot carrying a king. Now there's this really interesting part where you're like, okay, why is there wheels? Like, why is this relevant? What do wheels do? What do wheeled objects do? They move. Okay, this is really important. Where is the temple of God? Sorry, in Israel, where is the temple of God? Jerusalem. Jerusalem's 3,000 miles that way. Ezekiel's here in exile. God's revealing to Ezekiel, I am mobile. God's got wheels. God's not back in Jerusalem. Now think about this. This seems a little bit silly for you and I, but how pertinent would this be if you've just been ransacked and taken as a prisoner 2,000 miles away from the presence of God as you understand it? And all of a sudden, God says, I am mobile. I am with you. I didn't get left behind and am powerless. I am here with you, Ezekiel. And then Ezekiel continues, and we're gonna go straight into Ezekiel chapter two, and we're gonna spend some time reading here. You ready? So this is God speaking. 
chapter one ends and Ezekiel says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, this chariot flaming thing, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. And he, God said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. And he, God said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, quote, thus says the Lord God. Now, whether they hear or refuse to hear, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. And then this weird thing happens. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now, when I, Ezekiel, looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was on it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he, God, said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you. Fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. This is Ezekiel's call. God comes to him in this amazing vision on wheels saying, I'm with you. Here's my message. Speak to Israel. They are a rebellious house. Here are my words of lamentation and woe. Feed yourself on them. But notice this. This scroll, Ezekiel, describe it. God's words, even, even in correction, are as sweet as honey. Notice, God's not saying, oh, it's really, it's sweet as honey. Here, eat it. And then Ezekiel's like, no, God gives it to him and says, this is, a hard, this is hard news, Ezekiel. And Ezekiel eats it and says it's as sweet as honey. This is Ezekiel's role in his message as he begins warning Israel. Now, I think it's valuable to ingest this and have this as our frame of mind. This is who Ezekiel is. And I hope that if you go back and ever read Ezekiel again in the Old Testament, this frames up some interest and some curiosity, gives you some handholds to go back to it. Now, what happens after this warning? How do we get from chapter two to chapter 36? Historically, Israel refuses to change. God describes Israel to Ezekiel at one point like this. He says, Ezekiel, among my people, there is violence and brutality among neighbors. There is infidelity in marriage. There is a widespread acceptance of sexual relationship between family members. There are human sacrifices to idols. There is a corrupt priesthood that is defiling the temple. There is a corrupt judicial system that is defiling justice. There are abusive and corrupt kings and governmental leaders. So the consequence is that they are conquered by Babylon. And then the majority of the nation is either killed or taken away back to Babylon as exiles and refugees. And they spend one to two decades being manipulated and dominated in this foreign nation as people with no power. And so God's message in this moment changes from one of warning to one of promise. And he's reminding Israel of his message from the very beginning. He's saying evil will not be tolerated. And that's good news. It's hard, but it's as sweet as honey. But it also will not stop his plan of redemption. Now, in the consequence that God allows being taken over by Babylon, Israel's posture changes. They go from being rebellious with deaf ears to all of a sudden they are hopeless. They don't need to be curbed and corrected anymore. Now they need to be stirred into hope and promise. But 
really importantly, I want to point this out. God's message is continuous and constant all throughout. In the beginning, it is warning. In the middle is comfort. But it's not because God had a bipolar switch of disposition. Throughout the whole thing, even in warning, he was calling them back to faithfulness and he was calling them back to flourishing underneath his care. He was calling them back to faithfulness and warning and I was calling them back to faithfulness and comfort. It's the exact same message with the exact same heart throughout. But what they need in this moment is endurance and hope. Very importantly, they don't need another opportunity. They need new hearts. They don't only need a new opportunity. They need new hearts, which brings us to Ezekiel 36. Would you read this with me? This is Ezekiel 36, verse 16. And for this section, the next two sections, we're going to actually be reading quite a bit. Um, I think it's relatively easy to hang on, so bear with us. I hope you enjoy reading large portions of God's word together. So this is Ezekiel 36, verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, and he said, quote, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. I'll explain this, but let's keep reading for a second. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. Now, real quick note, because that's kind of confusing, especially for us. Um, God's not saying that women are unclean or there's anything wrong with that. Uh, in the Old Testament, anything that had to do with the spilling of blood represented the, sh- the, the breaking of life which is counter to God's goal for humanity and the world. His goal is flourishing in life, not the spilling of life and the breaking of flourishing. So what that meant was Israel had these uh, like ceremonial codes that had to do with ceremonial purity. And so if you were, um, if blood was coming out of your body for any reason, whether you had been cut or you had touched someone else's blood or you've been wounded, you are like ceremonially unclean. And you need to wait until that blood is no longer being spilled. So that's the image here. So uh, going right back here to verse 18, I wanna just clarify and explain this. He says specifically, I poured out my wrath upon them because of the blood that they had shed in their land for the idols with which they had defiled it. He's basically saying you're leaking blood. That's his image here. Now, I'm going to continue. Verse 19, God says, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they, had, when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord and yet they go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. But I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all of the countries and I will bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from your uncleannesses. I will summon the grain and I will make it abundant and I won't lay any famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that weren't good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. 
be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. And thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from your iniquities, I will cause all the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they, the nations will say, this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and the desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I've rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will do it. There's a couple things going on here and this is a bit of a hard passage, but there's something that we need to acknowledge. God uses this language. It's not for your sake that I will act. It's for my holy name. Remember at this point, Israel has been off the rails and there's, what God is saying is, and this is a hard reality for us, but ultimately it's freeing. God's essentially saying is, you're not the main point. You're not the center. God is. And think about this. God is mighty. He is good. He is lovely. He is admirable. He is delightful. He has no sin. He is the point. He is the center of all things. And so you and I exist primarily to express his goodness. We're, we exist to express his holiness. If you remember the very first week of this series from Genesis, we were made in his image. We were meant to be little statues representing him in the world. That is our role, to represent him and his goodness. We exist to point to him. And this is an amazingly enjoyable way to live. Think about how small this, like this is in the world. If the whole point of my existence is this, how small is that? But if the whole point of this is to express the, like, the inexhaustible goodness of the creator of heaven and earth, to rest in his goodness and his love and his abounding righteousness and justice and his beauty and to revel in it with all of creation, that is a beautiful way to live. That's what God is saying. And what God is saying is to profane his name then is a tragedy. To worship another God is not only a preference of truth. It is not a negligible distinction in how you see God. It is a profane tragedy. To worship another God will always have an evil outflow and it is also an evil in and of itself. And God in this passage and in all of history has chosen Israel to be special representatives of him. He's chosen them to be priests through which the whole world will be blessed, right? That's their role. That's our role is to bless all of the nations through Israel. And so then really importantly, if Israel is misrepresenting God, how damaging is that? If Israel is meant to proclaim God's goodness, but they're twisting the image, and now the whole world is failing to know God clearly and accurately. That's a tragedy because the failure to perceive God accurately means you will misperceive the rest of reality. And if this passage and some of the supposed heavy handedness of this, if some of that's making you question God or his heart or what is his posture, I wanna point us back to last week's message. Last week's message is that God promised a suffering servant who loved the world so much he gave himself for them. God is tender in his righteousness. He's not brutal in his righteousness. He loves the world so much he would actually take on our penalty. So the core of chapter 36, and we're about to move on to 37. The core of 36, is that our separation from God and our proneness to disobedience is because of this. We have hard hearts. We have stony hearts. Something is wrong at a deep core level of who you are, who we are. 
And so God's miraculous promise in this text is that he says, I'll put a new heart in you. And he says, I'll put my spirit in you and it will guide us and it will revive us and it will bring us to flourishing. It will instruct us. And so God is continuing his promises. And 37, which we're about to read, is a continuation of this. Because God says, I will renew your heart. I will put my spirit in you. What once was desolate, desolate shall now be fre like fresh and abundant like the Garden of Eden. But remember, God's people are in exile at this point. They've been under foreign domination for at least a decade or two. So God gives them this promise in chapter 36. And essentially, it's just too big. Their hearts are too worn out and tired. God, your promises are too big for me. I don't have the strength to hope in you. Which brings us to God's continuation in Ezekiel 37. Here we go. Now the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and he set me in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, the bones were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews and ligaments upon you. And I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. And I will put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews and ligaments on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then God said to me, prophesy to the breath Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet in an exceedingly great army or multitude. If you're confused, let's keep reading. <laughs> Verse 11, and then God said to me, son of man, do you know what these bones are? These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And therefore, God says, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves. I will raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. This passage really clearly, God is saying that the valley of dry bones represents my people, how they feel right now. We're dry bones, God. We don't have any hope. We're cut off. And so God is giving them a message. Now, the way that they feel makes sense. Can we agree on that? They've been in exile as refugees for two decades, almost. 20 years. Spend 20 years of your life in exile as a refugee and tell me you don't feel like your bones are dry. I have no hope, God. I'm not really sure why I'm living anymore. And so an important part is this imagery of the valley like this valley full of bodies that have dried up and rotted and now are bones. This is a vision, yes, but it's also a physical reality for Israel at this point. Think about this. Babylon came in and attacked them, killed thousands of people, many who were in the city, many who were trying to leave. And then you have this train of refugees who are dying of exposure on the way to Chaldea these Israelites would have experienced literal valleys where bodies have rotted and are now exposed to the sun, bones, sun bleached, sitting among rusting weapons. There was physical despair around these people. Our bones are dried up, God. 
I'm cut off, I have no hope. Your vision's too big for me. So God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? It's obviously a rhetorical question. He's saying, can the impossible happen, Ezekiel? Can I do something here? And then God gives Ezekiel a role. He says, prophesy, speak. Here are my words. And then Ezekiel speaks God's words over the bones. They come together. They grow sinew and ligaments and flesh and they stand, but there's one thing missing. What was the one thing missing? The Spirit of God breathed into them. Notice the Spirit of God breathed into the human beings is what brings life and power. It's crucial to this interpretation. And this spirit of God breathed into people is specifically and intentionally reminiscent of Genesis. How did God make mankind? He took them out of the dust and he raised them up into a body and then he breathed his spirit into them. And that was what brought life and power. Now, this vision can be rightly interpreted, interpreted? There we go. Can be rightly interpreted in two time frames, which we talked about at the very beginning. Can be interpreted in this historical time frame. And what I mean by that is both the people of Israel in that moment of history, as well as you and I, we're, we occupy the same age, if I may use that word. We are in the same age. And so the Israelites could interpret that as God saying, I know you feel dead. I know you've experienced too much to bear, but trust me, you are not alone. I'm on a chariot. I am mobile. I am with you. And so you and I then can interpret that and pull that out and hold on to that. And so I ask, how many of us feel dead? God, it's too much for me to bear. And that could be the consequence of our decisions, just like the people of Israel. In our rebelliousness, we've turned away from him and now we're a long journey into our own consequence. And I don't have hope anymore. Or it could be that I'm hopeless because the world's broken and I've gotten stuff thrown at me from left and right and none of it's my fault, but I'm still feeling dead and hopeless inside. And remember, Israel had concrete reasons to be hopeless. They could look around and see literal destruction. And I wanna give you and I credit in saying, you have reason to be hopeless. There is destruction and brokenness that you can point at and say, but what about that? Our bones are dried up. God, my hope is lost. I am indeed cut off. But God's message to them, and if we will receive it, as hard as it is, is he is saying, I will pull you out of the grave of the situation you are in. I will pull you out of the grave. I will wipe death off of you. I will sprinkle you clean. I will put my spirit within you. I will bring you back to life, both you, both the situations around you. I am the Lord and I will do it. And if we're willing to receive this message, this is how we push back on the despair. This is how we push back on the destruction around us. We say, God, I'm in exile, but you promise restoration and I will hold. My bones are dried. I feel cut off, but I will hold with you. God is offering hope. He's, I think he wants many of us to hear. You're not as dead as you think. There's hope to be had here and now, here and now. The spirit of God is in his people. God has put life and breath back into you if you are following him, renewed by his spirit, and he is with you. Can you receive that? Now, there's one other right interpretation, and it has to do with hope for the future age. So the first bit you and I have experienced here and now, hopelessness and a promise of restoration. But there's a second piece that you and I have not yet experienced. We can't. It's in the future. And it is Ezekiel pointing to this idea of resurrection. And this announcing of, I will pull you out of our graves, is a brand new prophetic element that God is revealing his plan of redemption. 
He's like pulling back the curtain and we're getting a glimpse to see what's happening. He's beginning to reveal that bodily resurrection, your physical body will be pulled out of the grave, remade, and his spirit will put life back into you. So in this, he's promising more than rescue from a national enemy. He's promising more than rescue from a cultural enemy. He's actually promising rescue from the enemy of death itself. I am the Lord and I will do it. That's what he is saying. Ezekiel's vision here, it is like this idea of resurrection is revealing God's concrete plan for his, the future. And we're gonna spend the entire rest of our next few minutes together in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because this is the New Testament's largest portion of writing that has to do with resurrection. And it's all about Jesus and you and hope for the future. Resurrection is supported Bodily resurrection is supported all throughout the New Testament, primarily through the life of Jesus. The gospels tell us that he lived and died and seen by hundreds of witnesses came back to life. And we know that he wasn't just a renewed spirit because one of the very first things he did is he went to his friends and said, hey, can I have some food? <laughs> I'm really hungry. And one of his friends was like, I don't know, you're kind of freaking me out. And he goes, no, look, touch me. And his friends touch him and marvel that Jesus was bodily resurrected. He is the primary bit of evidence for this. And even in the New Testament times, people were flabbergasted. They didn't believe it. If you have a skeptical heart over that, I share it with you. And New Testament writers addressed it specifically in 1 Corinthians 15. Would you read with me? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Then I'm going to skip to verse 17 for time. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who've fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man Adam came death, by one man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ is the first fruits. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This is the future age we're talking about. Verse 24, but then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. It's after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, period. That is crazy. And the fact that Jesus lived and died and resurrected has huge implications. We're gonna go over those really quick. In his death, he was the suffering servant. He took the penalty of sin. And in his life, he lived perfectly. He did not wander nor act rebelliously the way that Israel did and the way that you and I do. And so he has this record and this lifestyle of righteousness that he gifts to you and I, which enables us to be filled with the spirit. Sinful, broken people cannot be filled with the spirit, but those who wear Jesus's righteousness can be filled with the spirit of God. Remember Ezekiel 36 and 37? And then lastly, in his resurrection, Jesus legitimates his claim that he will redeem his people. He lived and died so that, so that we would be pulled out of our graves. We would be knit back together, flesh and bone and receive the spirit of life. And so God's plan of redemption is more than only changing people's hearts until they eventually succumb to death. His plan of redemption was to defeat death itself and you get to enjoy his spirit right now. 
That is the message of Jesus. And Paul continues it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. Oh, I read too far forward. It's okay. Um, we'll read this one more time. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. As by one man came death, also by one man has come also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And I will skip the rest for now. What I'm pointing at is there is concrete New Testament evidence that this is the plan. You, meat sack and all part of bodily resurrection, a new spirit put in you. But interestingly, Paul concludes this. There is something unique about resurrection. And this is the end of chapter 15, verse 50 through 58. Paul says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, what I tell you, it's a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. And so, oh, death, where is your victory? And death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Do you remember couple weeks ago, the story of the seed who would be struck by the serpent, but ultimately would crush the serpent's head. Paul is explaining Jesus was struck by the serpent. He died. And yet, in his resurrection, he defeated death for us. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? And he says, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we end the last two paragraphs of Paul's message is application for us. He ends by simply saying this, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Our application is that the sting of death is removed. It's gone. The power over sin in us is gone and we can be thankful and rejoice that there's victory secured in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I'm at peace. The sting of death is gone. And then he is urging his brothers and sisters, he's saying, be steadfast, steadfast in your faith, be immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord for your labor is not in vain. Paul is saying that you can be steadfast through suffering, through hardship, through the death of your loved ones, through even the loss of your own life because Jesus has proven that the end of God's plan is resurrection. It doesn't end at the end of your life. Therefore, I can be immovable in faith. And I can be immovable in faith while I feel as dry as bones. Because I know the end of God's plan is resurrection and hope. And I can abound in the work of the Lord because Jesus gives me work that is more meaningful than anything else because the work of the Lord is eternal. The work of the Lord is not a couple of decades before I die. The work of the Lord is a couple of decades until God resurrects us and everything I did here and now carries forward into eternity. 
The people that I share the gospel with, they don't just hear some good news and then die. They hear some good news, eventually die, and then are resurrected bodily into eternity. So I will abound in the work of the Lord. You and I get a taste of resurrection here and now. Let's do this thing called baptism. Baptism, and I'm not gonna read this for the sake of time, but if you'd like to write it down and look at it later, Romans 6 is very clear. We participate in the death of Jesus through baptism. That is what ceremonial going underwater is. It's symbolizing the grave. And then in baptism, as you come out of the water, out of the grave, you receive the spirit of God. You receive new life breathed into you. And this is a symbol Who I am has died and I am now in Christ. I am embracing this idea of bodily resurrection. And this is what Easter is about. Easter is that Jesus died and was raised and now I will die and be raised with him. He took my death. He is the king that rescues. His heel was struck by Satan, but he crushed Satan in death's head. So Good Friday, in a couple days, we mourn the necessity of his death. And then Sunday, we celebrate the fact that he has resurrected and he has victory over death. And on Sunday, what we exclaim is this, Jesus is Lord. Very importantly, this is what we exclaim. Satan is not Lord. Death is not Lord. Sin is not Lord. Despair is not Lord. Jesus is is Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, this is good news for your people. Many of us are celebrating seasons of flourishing and delight, and many of us are weeping, and our bones are dry, and I don't know how I will continue on. Father, give us hope, make us steadfast and immovable, knowing that you promise resurrection, and we get to experience that in restoration here and now, and we also get to experience in this future age to come, bodily, spiritual resurrection, together brought into a new creation. Amen.